Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. Coming to you from Clayton Studios in St. Louis, I'm Brian Reardon, your host, and with me is Marianne Steiner. Hi, Marianne. Hey, Brian. So good to be here again. Good to be with you. And this topic today, we're going to talk about children's health insurance and what we can do in Catholic healthcare to make sure that uh, kids have access to coverage so they can get access to care. And we've got two great guests with us. Our first guest has actually uh, been on another episode a couple of years ago on Medicaid. It is Joan Alker. She's executive director and a research professor with the Center for Children and Families at Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy. Joan, it's great to have you back with us. Well, thanks for having me. And our other guest here in studio is Dr. Heidi Sally. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at St. Louis University and medical director at the Danis Pediatric Center at SSM Health Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital. She's also a practicing pediatrician. Dr. Sally, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I probably should have told, I forgot about the pronunciation of our, our uh, clinic. It's Donnie Pediatric ah, Center. thank you. Thank yes, you. So it we'll happens sure th- to be named after my grandfather. So, oh, how um, cool. That's yeah, a little... so I'm always uh, correcting everybody's pronunciation. Yeah, and uh, so. I'll probably need a lot of correction during this conversation, yes. so don't don't hesitate to jump in. But thank you. So it's Donnie, yeah. it's the Donnie Pediatric Center. Correct, yes. Thanks for having me today. Great to have you here. So, Joan, I'm going to start with you. Um, There was a study from Georgetown University, you co-authored it, uh, I think it was last year, that really got our attention at CHA. And the reason it did is because it showed that after reaching an historic low of uh, 4.7% back in 2016, uh, the child uninsured rate actually began to increase in 2017. And then as of 2019, which is, I guess, the the last year we have numbers available, it went back up to 5.7%. And that increase of a full percentage point actually translates to approximately 726,000 more children in the U.S. without health insurance. Uh, That's concerning to us because we've seen such a positive trend line since the ACA in particular was passed of fewer and fewer uninsured um, individuals across the country. And to see this little bit of a, a spike for kids is concerning. So I guess my first question to you is, you know, what are some of the factors or factors uh, for the, this jump in uninsured rates among children? Yeah, thanks, Brian. So this is a study that we've been doing every year for the last 10 years. And we use census data that comes out in the fall just to kind of do a check-in on where are we as a country. And we look at all 50 states and the District of Columbia to see what's happening with child uninsured rates. And so for the first seven years of writing the study, it was always good news. Uh, the number was going in the right direction. And in fact, uh, it really has been a historic accomplishment for our country that we had managed to reduce the number of uninsured children so dramatically over 20 years, really. In fact, the progress really predates the passage of the Affordable Care Act for kids. We had Medicaid expansions um, that were passed in the Reagan era. And following that in the late 1990s, the Children's Health Insurance Program came along, another bipartisan initiative. And so the ACA was sort of for kids, it was almost, you know, like the the top layer of the cake because a lot of progress had been made. But after the Affordable Care Act passed, we did get the number down to the lowest ever in 2016, as you mentioned. But then unfortunately, um, over the past uh, three or four years, it started going in the wrong direction. Um, And there were a few reasons for that. Um, We have, I'd say, sort of three buckets of reasons. Um, One is there are a lot of kids out there, about 60% of uninsured kids are actually eligible for Medicaid or CHIP, but they're not currently enrolled. 
And what happened um, when President Trump came into office is that immediately Congress uh, began working on repealing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and of course that didn't ultimately succeed, but Congress spent about a year trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act and also delayed the extension of the Children's Health Insurance Program. Um, so families were hearing that coverage was going away uh, and that's problematic. At the same time, resources to support community-based navigators and other kinds of folks in the community who help families navigate these public coverage options, which can be quite complicated for kids. Um, as Dr. Sally, I'm sure is aware, um, they were also being cut. So that's sort of one bucket is that there was a lot of negative messages families were hearing um, about the availability of coverage that it was going away and the resources to help them were being cut. Second reason we think uh, the number went in the wrong direction is that we, uh, particularly in the end of this period, saw what we call a chilling effect for um, mixed status families, um, particularly Latino children who've always had a higher uninsured rate, uh, but we've seen that gone up quite a bit. And so you have a lot of families in this country where the child is a citizen eligible for public coverage, but the parent is not. And those families, because of the many anti-immigrant actions that were taking place, um, there was a real fear about interacting with government. And that we think led to a chilling effect. And we know this from other research. Families didn't want to sign their kids up for Medicaid or nutrition benefits. And then the last reason is what we call a kind of an increase in red tape. You know, the more red tape you put up for kids to enroll and stay enrolled in a program like Medicaid or CHIP, the fewer kids you're going to have. And we did see some states uh, putting up more red tape um, during these years. So those are the three factors that we think explain this unfortunate turnaround and what had been a very bipartisan and um, historic uh, accomplishment that our country had made over many decades. And Heidi, is that pretty consistent with what you've seen? Absolutely, 100%. The red tape especially um, rings a bell with me for sure. For a fair number of my patients, I don't I don't have all the statistics uh, that Joan has specifically. I have more anecdotes and specific patients, but definitely saw patients who were, my understanding of what was going on here in Missouri was is that they were being dropped off of Medicaid. And when the families found out that they weren't on Medicaid, they were now not able to make it in for various checkups or follow-ups for chronic diseases and such. And then we're needing to reapply. And like she mentioned, red tape is difficult to, you know, find what the problem was and to reapply. Most of the kids that I saw reapplied and were still eligible. It's not that there was a circumstance that changed in their family that you know, said, oh, you're no longer eligible for these benefits. They were still eligible. They had just been dropped off for a variety of different reasons, but sort of just making it more difficult um, for the kids to get on, you know, to drop them off, make it easier, make it e harder to get back on. Um, so I definitely saw kids that were affected by that for sure. Um, yeah. Is there paperwork? Um, and I'm trying to, it may vary from state to state, but um, I, I believe there are some states that require to kind of check in once a year and say, 
you know, you have to fill out something to, to prove that you're, you know, you have a child and that the child would be eligible. Is exactly. that a barrier? Exactly. Yeah. So what was happening for some of, at least some of these families, is, is that paperwork was being mailed to an address they were no longer at, you know, missing, and there, or for some reason that didn't get to them, and so they weren't aware that they were needing to get the paperwork completed. We actually then went to our state legislature to sort of close that loophole and um, made it that children are now. Um, once they're enrolled, they're enrolled continuously for a year and won't be dropped off and to try and close some of those loopholes. But we actually went um, to our legislature directly to, to make some changes there. Is there some um, advocacy program built into Medicaid where people who uh, you know are caught in those frustrating situations that they can go to? Or do they go to their doctor's office? Or how, how do they get how do they get help in handling the bureaucracy? Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, the patients that we see, you know, especially if they come to, they make an appointment, then they come and we check their insurance and they're no longer eligible, they're no longer um, enrolled, is, is that we do have social workers who are available. We also um, have had where uh, Medicaid employees themselves are actually at the hospital and available to try to work with them. So we definitely try to get them re-enrolled in that type of support. I don't know of any specific um like agency where they can, you know, 1-800 number or something or, or a website that they can go to and, and sort of report problems or seek help specifically. But I do know that, you know, our hospital is a children, a Catholic children's hospital has many supports in there. A lot of the supports like the social workers who can help the families navigate these difficult uh, paperwork and such are supported by the charitable arm called Cardinal Glennon Foundation. Mm-hmm. So that is one avenue. It's not the ideal. Um, the ideal is to keep them continuously enrolled and to have eligibility that we, you know, don't even have 96% coverage. We have 100% coverage of all children get the health care they need. Yeah, it's kind of a patchwork system, really. And that's, that is a problem. I think the providers end up doing a lot of the work. Um, and there are some uh, federally supported ship outreach grants um, that have been funded over the years, but those are not universal. And then, as we talked about before, there are these community-based navigator programs um, that have helped some families who are negotiating maybe the federal marketplace as well as for their kids. You know, the parent might be eligible for the marketplace, but the kid is eligible for Medicaid or CHIP. And then, you know, some families wind up seeking help from legal services. But it is it is problematic because these red tape challenges, particularly a renewal, and I think that often gets lost in the conversation because we can all, you know, it's sort of more intuitive to think about, oh, we got to do outreach. And particularly now, when you think about last year during the pandemic and the recession, we probably had a lot of families whose income dropped who might not have known their kids were eligible for public coverage. Um, and so outreach, I think, is intuitive. It's still, we still need more of it. But the fact that we lose so many children at renewal um, is really problematic. And that's where, you know, as Dr. Sally mentioned, these issues like return mail is a huge issue. Low-income families have a pretty high degree of housing instability, uh, tend to move around more than higher-income families. Um, and that's one of, one of the kinds of ways in which these sort of red tape issues kick up. But there are others as well. And so making sure that we keep those kids on at renewal and really, you know, a lot of it is, is there a desire? And it, it comes, frankly, in most states, it's got to come right from the governor's office. 
a message to say, we want to have kids covered. Mm -hmm. The default should be keeping the kid on, not kicking them off. I agree 100%. It would would benefit. And I, I think the hard part is, is that a lot of the benefits that we see from children being on Medicaid, maintaining a healthy child, you don't see those benefits in your pocketbook the next day, mm-hmm. right? Those are benefits because that child can stay in school, that child can go on to have a career and then support themselves. I mean, that's very simplified, but you know, simple things like that, that child doesn't go to the emergency room for their asthma because it's well-controlled. And those costs are, are cost savings, and so you're not seeing them, whereas if the child's not enrolled in Medicaid, then you're not paying for, Medicaid's not paying for that checkup, that asthma follow-up, and things like that. So it's, it's cost savings to the government and the society as a whole, but it's much later down the road. Yeah, I just love to pick up on that point for a sec because we, we just um, issued a report about six months ago with the Commonwealth Fund that uh, looks at exactly the the point that Dr. Sally is making. And of course, you know, a lot of time our, our policymakers are looking at a one-year budget. They're not mm-hmm. thinking long-term. And there's just a lot of research showing the long-term benefits investing in Medicaid for children. There are educational benefits. We know that children who had access to Medicaid have higher high school graduation rates and even higher uh, college attendance rates. We know they pay more in taxes as adults. They use fewer public benefits as adults. And uh, they have better health outcomes even as adults, including lower rates of certain chronic conditions and even lower mortality rates. So there's a growing body of evidence about this long-term value of investing in Medicaid. And I think this is so important that we do need our policymakers to be looking at this from this longer-term perspective. Yeah. And I have a patient that I think is a a really good example of this real quick. She's a five-year-old who um, has asthma and needs to be on controller medicines. And like I said at the beginning, she kind of got kicked off of Medicaid. And that's probably not the most positive term, but that's how I view it. She got kicked off of Medicaid. She lost her coverage. Um, And so she wasn't able to get her controller medicine. So she had an asthma attack. She presented to the emergency room where they treated her. Um, Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital Emergency Room, they treated her, they gave mom new prescriptions and, you know, she was doing better. So they sent her on her way. Well, of course, mom couldn't get those prescriptions filled because the child does not enrolled on Medicaid. Uh, mom had already by then reapplied. She had, before she even had this problem, she realized that she had been kicked off and had, or had been disenrolled. And so she reapplied. So she was waiting on the paperwork. Uh, a couple days later, the asthma again got worse. On the way to the emergency room for the second time, the child lost consciousness and oh. EMS had to be called and she had to be transported via um, the, um, uh, you know, by ambulance. Um, so came back to the ER. They didn't, uh, of course, wouldn't want to send her home under these conditions. So then she was admitted to the hospital where I saw her. And so we actually kept her an extra day to make sure that our pharmacy would dispense the medicines because we have an in-house pharmacy and they would dispense medicines even if the parents couldn't pay for them. Again, another benefit of a very mission-based hospital system. And so we got her home. I saw her about a month later and followed up for a five-year-old checkup and um, asking mom all the routine questions. Her asthma is under great control. She's doing really well. No further emergency room visits, no further use of her rescue medicine. She was doing great. But then asking about um, how she's doing in school. And mom said, you know what? She's doing so much better because she's not waking up at all night long, coughing mm. and wheezing. And so now 
she's doing well in school. And before she was having behavior problems, she wasn't paying attention. And I just was thinking, I'm like, this poor child was probably on the path to getting a diagnosis of something like ADHD because of her behavior, because she wasn't sleeping, because she had asthma, and that wasn't treated because she lost her enrollment in Medicaid. And there were so many expenses in that just that one month time period that could have been avoided had she been able to stay. And you can just see down the road how much better off she's going to do as long as she can stay insured and get the care that she needs. So I'm not looking for blame, but yes. uh, in, the, <laughs> in the story that you just told, Dr. Sally, I, it seems to me that there were lots of places where things could have gone right, and they very definitely went wrong before you all um, at Cardinal Glennon were able to save the situation. I, I, I'm just curious, like, do you think that Medicaid is being as proactive as it can be in terms of keeping people on? Do you think that parents are getting the right information? I mean, I, I understand what um, Joan said about uh, home stability and, and housing stability. Factors, yeah. But, you know, I, I bet the electric company finds them to send them a bill. <laughs> so I'm wondering That's... if there are more proactive ways that, that Medicaid, uh, that health systems, that physicians could be making sure that the gaps aren't as wide as they are. So I think in the, you know, in the, the hard, one of the hard parts is this is state by state, right. you know? Yeah. And so um, I also see slightly different experiences and I do have patients who come from Illinois as well. Um, but these are state-run programs. Yes, they're federally funded, but they're state-run programs. So it's state by state. So I know where there's flaws in the Missouri state program. I do not see Medicaid being proactive in Missouri. I can't speak to other states as well. Um, in terms of what they are doing. And I think maybe there are probably states who are doing a much better job about keeping kids enrolled, getting kids enrolled who aren't. Um, I know federally qualified health centers, um, which I think Joan mentioned, can be an excellent place because those are places that also people know that they can go and, and be seen on a sliding scale of self-pay, but it's to that health center's interest to see if they would be eligible. So they usually have... have uh, uh, mechanisms for you know seeing if they're eligible for Medicaid and helping them to get enrolled in those situations and and we do as well when we you know see patients in the emergency room or different things and in, in terms of getting them back on but I think Medicaid itself could be but it's a matter of our state legislators seeing the benefit of it and making the laws to enable Medicaid to do so and to put, make that as a priority and yeah I would just jump in and say there are a lot of uh, state differences, and a lot of it comes down to what we call these red tape policies. And probably one of the, in Missouri, I have to say, it was pretty notorious during this period that we were talking about. Yeah, we're not real proud of that. Yes, we are not. <laughs> so, but, but I think, you know, one of the shifts that we need to make as a country and how we think about coverage is that we've got to think about it not as a point in time thing, right? We've got to think about it as continuous coverage, particularly for children, but really for everybody. And, um, you know, some states have uh, a certain policy called 12-month continuous eligibility. And what that means is that when a child is enrolled, then um, they're enrolled for 12 months no questions asked, doesn't matter what happens in the family, um, they're enrolled and there are no further action needed. So not all states have that 
policy, um, and that's a very important policy. Um, that's a, a policy that I think Missouri does not have and would greatly we, benefit from. We actually there. just got that changed. Literally, oh, great. Um, the Missouri chapter of the AAP and other uh, interested parties went and spoke You know, directly. We went to Jefferson City. And so that's probably been in the last 24 months or so. But yeah, that was a huge huge win on our part. We were very excited about it. But when I was talking about this particular patient, we didn't have that. And that was a big part of the problem. And it was, a, it was, you know, kind of crisis level for us. So. Yeah. And we, so we did a, we're, we're trying to sort of stimulate new thinking, like how do we get out of the box around, especially as we think about kids coverage. And one of the ideas that we've been kicking around, and this would be a national system, but states of course play a big role is let's make sure that no newborn leaves the hospital without coverage, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's critical. Most babies are born in the hospital. And then the parent can sign them up for their own employer coverage, or they can be defaulted into Medicaid if that's not available. And then let's cover, just cover them zero to five continuously. Um, this is a critical period in, in child development, um, and, um, let's just keep them covered. And then when they go to school, you check their coverage again, you do a kind of coverage checkup every fall, but a system like this is really, I think where we need to think about so that we don't, you know, everybody knows in this country, when you're 65, you go on Medicare and that helps, right? It's, it's one rule. Everybody understands that, but because Medicaid is such a patchwork, state to state that we do get, you know, we can say it's 5.7% of kids are uninsured, but it's a, a larger percentage of kids who are churning off and on right. um, over any given period of time. So, so we'd like to, to start stimulating the thinking for these kinds of ideas um, so we can make sure that our kids remain covered. And Joan, you alluded to this earlier in, in talking about the, the history of, of coverage for kids. And I remember how uh, popular the CHIP program has been. And there's been sort of a bipartisan love fest. I mean, if there's one issue, it's it's kids' health that I think everybody can get behind, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. Do you see any hope that um, there could be some bipartisan agreement in, in, a, in a time where it just seems like everything has to be sort of a, a struggle on that? What's your sense, you know, being in Washington about what you just described, that zero to five sort of automatic coverage. Um, do, do you see an appetite for that on Capitol Hill in particular? Well, I think it's it's definitely worth talking about. And I may be, you know, I, I am a glass half full kind of person. Um, and I do think that we have seen this history of bipartisanship around children. I mean, as you mentioned, everything is so partisan these days. And that's particularly true when it comes to healthcare, right? Healthcare has been just a <laughs> huge yeah. um, sort of fight back and forth. So I would hope that children might be a way to turn down the temperature a little bit on this really extreme partisanship that we're seeing around healthcare. And, uh, you know, I've sort of surfaced this idea in some closed door meetings with Republican and Democratic state legislators, and they all seem to find it appealing. I mean, it's, it's no one is going to come out and say they don't want children to have health insurance. Um, so, so I think this is where we have to start changing the conversation and really get back to some values that we all share, um, which is ensuring that our children are growing up healthy and and able to succeed. Yeah, and even from a fiscal standpoint, I mean, the example you gave of, of the five-year-old with asthma, 
and just all of the ripple effects of not having that coverage, it just seems even if you're just looking at this purely from a dollar and cents lens, it makes a lot of sense to, to have that coverage in place. Yeah. And because of the way things work is a lot of times it can be retroactive to 30 days. So once she got re-enrolled, then Medicaid would cover all of that, those two ER visits, that hospitalization. So Medicaid ended up paying for that. You know, so I would say that there is hope for this bipartisanship on children's health right now. There's a bipartisan bill in the House, which is um, in support of updating the Vaccines for Children program, which is not Medicaid or CHIP, but it partners with them to provide the vaccines to the children who um, receive their health care through Medicaid and CHIP. So interestingly enough, those programs don't provide vaccines because there's this partner program called Vaccines for Children. It's pretty complicated in terms of getting into all the details. But I was just virtually in Washington, D.C. about a week and a half ago um, speaking with our state legislator and our state senator, the senators from Missouri to um, our state representative, I guess, and our senators from Missouri um, with regards to this bill. I believe it's House Bill 2347. Um, right now, there's not a Senate bill, but um, I think the senator, one of the senators from Rhode Island was going to propose it, was looking for a Republican co-sponsor. The bill in the House has two Republicans and two Democrats as the co-sponsors. And all of our conversations, and of course, from Missouri, all of my um, the, our, my representative, as well as my two state senators, are Republican, and we um, from had really good, positive response from all three of their offices with regards to this particular bill. So I think potentially there could be some hope around this, and and I love the idea of continuous coverage for five years, and then maybe the next go around we get up till ten years or twelve years, <laughs> and just keep pushing that age limit up till we get at least to eighteen. Twenty one seems- would be ideal. Yeah. It just seems to make such logical public policy sense. It does make so much sense, but let's. I, I would like to suss out the the barriers to it. So, one is obviously fiscal, right? I mean, nobody ever wants any taxes to go up, and so there there are those kinds of barriers. What other barriers do you see? I mean, why would why would someone vote against something like that? I think it's. Well, uh, go ahead, John. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think there's um, right now the Medicaid program is federal. It's a majority of federal money, has federal rules, but it is state run. And so having something and, and this is why we're trying to build on this current structure. Um, but any health policy change is very hard, right? That's, <laughs> that is clear. Um, so um, there's always concern, I think, about federalizing things and mandating things and sort of state flexibility concerns that are expressed, you know, whatever is driving that, we'll, we'll leave that question aside. Um, so, so those would be my guess of what would come up in addition to any fiscal concerns, quote unquote. But um, but again, you know, I think this is where children in particular and young children would be a good way to start this conversation. I don't know, uh, Dr. Sell, if you wanted to add to that. Yeah, I, I would say I just echo exactly what she just said. Absolutely. So as we're wrapping up the conversation, I think one thing that's crystal clear is, again, in Catholic healthcare is lending our voices to advocacy efforts around these public policy decisions that are made, whether it's in Washington or even at the state level. And I think a lot of times on this program, we talk more about national, but it seems there's a lot of work to be done at the state capitals around the country. The other thing I want to ask you, Dr. Sally, is um, I know that reading some of the work you guys have been doing on this issue, um, you have 
Um, in some cases, I think they're called certified application assistants, uh, navigators. Is there a role for Catholic health systems, uh, healthcare facilities, particularly those that have a large pediatric presence, to do more on sort of the, uh, for lack of a better word, case management, social work aspects to ensure parents have the support they need to sort of navigate the barriers that we've just discussed? Yeah. So we actually, for every visit, our patients come in for all their well visits. They actually fill out a form. It's We call it the family well-being questionnaire because it asks a lot of questions, but it asks about things like food insecurity, housing issues, you know, the whole gamut of concerns that people potentially could have, including screening for domestic violence and screening for paternal depression. So, I mean, it's a, it's only 13 questions, but one of the questions is, are you having trouble with your Medicaid, your SNAP, um, which some people call food stamps, your WIC, the Women, Infant, and Children Nutritional Supplement Program? And when they answer yes to that, we do have a variety of different resources in our clinic that can help. And those are, they actually, those those uh, roles, when we first set up this program, it was a grant-funded program, but because it's been so successful, the um, hospital actually supports those um, people now in terms of as human resources. So we have social workers, we have family, what we call family navigators, but people who have been trained to assist the families in that way. But the hard part there is, right, they're already in care. They're already there. And so, yes, there's a huge role for that. But is there more we can do for outreach, potentially, and um, in those roles there, too? Because, again, if we have a family who comes in and the children are enrolled in Medicaid you know, or have coverage versus a child who comes in the emergency room really sick and doesn't have coverage, you know, it's to the advantage of of the hospitals and such to do what they can to make sure that the coverage is there from the beginning. Um, And we do have people to help. And I think it's a wonderful program that we're always happy to talk about and brag about. But we do have amazing support from our charitable foundation to help with that. That's great. Well, as we uh, wrap up this conversation, Joan, I want to just give you the final word. Is there anything for those of us who work in Catholic healthcare, particularly those of us in leadership positions, um, what what more can we be doing on this issue? Well, you know, I think it would be really helpful to raise up these kids' issues. Um, you know, we certainly at the Center for Children and Families think it's vitally important that that everybody has coverage, including parents and caregivers and everybody in the community. But sometimes... Children take a back seat in some of these healthcare discussions because they're not the cost drivers usually, and the cost drivers tend to um, stimulate a lot of the conversation. But um, so that's where I think um, for, for a group like Catholic Health Association, it, it's really great to have your voices in the mix here. Um, raising up these kids' issues. Yeah, I would actually like to add sort of on those cost drivers things is that. I th- and I may be a little off on my numbers, but children are somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of covered people in Medicaid or something. It's a very small group. Um, but on a per capita basis or a per person basis, the cost for covering children is very, very low as compared to the cost for covering, you know, like patients on Medicare. Um, it's a very low cost endeavor to cover children compared to adults. Definitely. Well, this has been a great conversation, Marion. Don't you agree? I think it's been wonderful, and I love it when we have participants who are talking policy and practice at the same exactly, time. Exactly, yeah. So thanks thanks to both of you. So again, we had Joan Elker. She's the executive director of and a research professor at the Center for Children and Families at Georgetown. And we had Dr. Heidi Sally. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at St. Louis University and also a practicing pediatrician. Thank you both for 
what a great conversation and contributing your your thoughts. And I think uh, hopefully some of the examples, Heidi, that you provided and just the overview, Joan, will, will be helpful for those of us who are, are passionate about this issue. And I think there's a lot of work to be done, but hopefully we've got some ideas on how we can uh, advance the cause. So thank you both. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. It was great fun. And that's been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. For Mary Ann Steiner, I'm Brian Reardon. And until next time, we'll talk to you.